Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It's Thursday, January 25. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, Cedar Rapids Council won't take up Gaza ceasefire resolution. This story is by Marissa Payne. Local activists are asking the Cedar Rapids City Council to join neighboring city governments in passing a resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire to the Israel-Hamas war. So far, it seems the nine-member council won't be moved to take up such a resolution and will likely reject the pleas to follow Johnson County communities, including Iowa City and Coralville, whose councils have passed ceasefire resolutions. While council members say the city lacks authority to weigh in on foreign policy, the activists say they disagree with the notion this isn't a local matter. In an October 7 attack on Israel, the Hamas militant group killed about 1,200 people and kidnapped more than 200, including some Americans, triggering the war that has gone on for more than three months. The Israeli military continues to bombard Gaza, and as of Sunday, the number of Palestinians killed has surpassed 25,000. Around the nation, activists have been asking local governments to pass resolutions, mostly symbolic gestures, urging a lasting solution to the decades-old Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Some major Democratic-led cities, including Detroit and Atlanta, have adopted the measures, though in Chicago the resolution's passage is less certain, after the city council tabled it this week. We're very mindful of the rich histories and ethnicities represented in our city. The question of whether or not the city has a resolution or not, we aren't here to debate the merits of the resolution, Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell said. The question of the council is whether we are going to wade into issues of foreign policy, of which we certainly have no authority. The answer is no. Cedar Rapids' resolution, brought to the council by Advocates for Social Justice, has been endorsed by Veterans for Peace, Activists of Iowa, Jewish Voice for Peace Eastern Iowa, Iowans for Palestine, Party for Socialism and Liberation, Cedar Rapids Democratic Socialists of America, and Students for Justice in Palestine. More than a dozen people in attendance at Tuesday's council meeting stood in support of a ceasefire. Some waved small Palestinian flags with Ceasefire Now written on the back. Specifically, like the resolution passed by the Iowa City Council in a 4-3 to vote, the proposed Cedar Rapids measure calls for the city to support a permanent ceasefire in Palestine and Israel, the return of all captives, and the delivery of humanitarian aid, and affirming opposition to anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and anti-Arab bigotry, with the aim of achieving a just and lasting political solution. Miriam, or Mimi Dawood, the Advocates for Social Dust with Advocates for Social Justice, said it is unfair for the mayor and council to be vocal for Israel but silent for Palestine. O'Donnell posted on her mayoral Facebook account on October 10, God bless Israel, with an Israeli flag over the image of a Cedar Rapids skyline. At the October 10 meeting, O'Donnell said those in the chambers would pray for peace in the Middle East, but the invocation led by public safety chaplain Jim Coyle acknowledged the Israeli lives lost in the attack. 
I take issue with the contrasting it. I take issue with the contrasting it of the silence for Palestinian lives, Dawood said, posting God bless Israel, praying for Israel, reading a prayer for Israel on a municipal government floor, and then turning around and saying that a discussion about Palestine is not a local issue is quite hypocritical. Dawood said the advocates would be interested in working with city officials to draft a resolution emphasizing the city and Cedar Rapids's police department's commitment to all citizens, regardless of their ethnicity, religion, background, and political beliefs. That is also a great step, but I don't think they're mutually exclusive, Dawood said, of maintaining momentum on a ceasefire resolution. I think that both can happen. The Cedar Rapids activists' request also comes after the Iowa House last week adopted a resolution that recognizes the state of Israel's right to act decisively and unilaterally in self-defense, and calls upon Iowa's state and local law enforcement agencies to remain vigilant in protecting Israeli Americans and all supporters of the state of Israel from acts of crime and unlawful discrimination. Who are we supposed to rely on? Who are we supposed to come to? If it's not this municipal government, who is it? Dawood said. If we are not trying to, or excuse me, not turning to our state government, we are turning to you. With some Johnson County cities adopting a ceasefire resolution, if Cedar Rapids declines to support such a measure, Anthony Arrington with Advocates for Social Justice asked the council, are we agreeing with the state? Are we okay with that? Councilmember David Meyer said he felt this was scope creep and that local governments don't have a role to play in this matter. He met with advocates before Tuesday's council meeting to discuss the resolution, but he did share concerns about safety issues and said if there are people in the community who feel unsafe, the city should, could have a hand in addressing that. Perhaps that's just the police communicating that they want to reiterate they serve and protect everyone, regardless of their race or color or beliefs, Meyer said. Asked if there were other ways she envisioned the city offering support to Palestinians in Cedar Rapids, O'Donnell said she has not been approached by anyone else in the community on this issue and did not have immediate answers. Ann Harris-Carter with Advocates for Social Justice said she is concerned the council might miss the opportunity to demonstrate what it means to say, welcome is our language. There's a clear dissonance for me. Neighbors come together in times of need, despite differences, and when I consider the language of the resolution making its way through the state legislature in Iowa, I am mortified that it is not the language of welcome, Carter said. State Representative Sammy Sheets, a Democrat from Cedar Rapids, said in a statement that as a resident of Cedar Rapids and the first Arab-American state legislator in Iowa's history, he is deeply disappointed in the city's decision to not consider a ceasefire resolution. While state and local governments around the U.S. weigh in on the conflict, Sheets said the council's argument against considering its own resolution is less salient. While the city's decision will not impact the outcome of the war, its moral stand can symbolize our community's commitment to peace, justice, and human rights, Sheets said. By publicly advocating for a ceasefire, the Council can send a powerful message, contributing the collective call for peace in the region. 
And the article is accompanied by a photo of several people who have been approaching the city council. Also on the front page today, developer seeks in incentives for Ellis Boulevard Northwest townhomes. This story is by Marissa Payne. A developer is seeking workforce housing tax credits to transform city-owned land on Ellis Boulevard Northwest into seven newly built townhome units. After the city in October issued a request for proposals to sell and redevelop the property at 1319, 1323, 1327, and 1333 Ellis Boulevard Northwest, Mods Enterprises proposed a $1.5 million project to construct a pair of two-story buildings that would add seven units, a mix of market rate rentals and owner-occupied homes. City planner Jeff Wozencraft said most of the properties were acquired after the 2008 flood and one was acquired in a tax sale. One three-unit townhome building would have high-end finishes and rear balconies and would be for sale. The other four-unit building would be rentals. The 1,560-square-foot townhomes would be two-bedroom and two-and-a-half bathroom units with two-stall detached garages. The developer was formed by Madit Williams, who owned the now-defunct Taboo Nightclub and Lounge in downtown Cedar Rapids. The club closed after a shooting in April of 2022 that left three people dead and injured others. Two lawsuits naming the Taboo Club and a part-time employee there, Timothy L. Rush, have been filed one alleging the wrongful death of one of those killed, and the other alleging negligence in the wounding of a patron. Neither petition has been set for a trial. Rush pleaded to involuntary manslaughter and other charges in two of the killings. Dimeone Walker of Coralville, who was in the club that night, was convicted of first-degree murder in the other fatal shooting. Williams also previously owned a now-closed convenience store that was on the first floor of the Roosevelt Building in downtown Cedar Rapids. Mods Enterprises is looking to apply for workforce housing tax credits through the Iowa Economic Development Authority, which requires a local match. The City Council signed off Tuesday on a local match of a 10-year, 100% reimbursement of the increased value of the project. City staff estimate the project would generate $192,000 in taxes over those 10 years, of which $149,000 would be reimbursed. The state authority will review workforce housing tax credit applications after a June 10 deadline. A local review panel made up of a number of Northwest Neighborhoods, excuse me, Northwest Neighbors Neighborhood Association, a financial lender, and a non-competing developer reviewed the proposal for the project. The panel and city staff recommended the proposal to the council. All of them came together to say, is the proposal financially feasible, market feasible, and the right fit for the neighborhood, said Community Development Director Jennifer Pratt. This is the only part of the process we've done so far. This proposal does not constitute a development agreement, which would outline terms of a city-incentivized project and expectations for the developer. The Council's action Tuesday signals receipt of the proposal and allows further discussions, as well as the state tax credit application, to move forward. 
each step of that process, the appropriate issues are addressed, Pratt said. Pratt said Williams has no existing projects with the city, but previously submitted a proposal for a project in the new Bohemia district. He was one of four who provided a proposal for that project. The city awarded the proposal to High Development to build a $23.7 million residential and mixed-use facility on city-owned land at 116 16th Avenue Southeast. Williams said his company, since 2019, has renovated five single-family homes in Wellington Heights, two of which he's sold. This project on Ellis Boulevard Northwest would be his first new build. For me, living in Chicago most of my entire life, I've seen what neighborhoods look like, and I've seen what they look like after you have some attention to those neighborhoods where people want to develop them and get better housing, Williams said. Councilmember David Meyer asked about the low level of interest in redeveloping the Ellis Boulevard Northwest properties. The city received only one proposal. Wozencraft said the disposition goes out to the city's prospective developer list, and there was interest that didn't translate into proposals. There are difficulties of developing in this area, he said, acknowledging the flooding risks that come with building in an area still waiting for permanent flood protection. Council Member Scott Olson said these units will be a nice addition to that area with a mix of ownership. And the article includes a drawing of what those proposed units would look like. Turning now to some Iowa Today news, this story by Marissa Payne, Cedar Rapids Council advances rezoning at Big Cedar Industrial Center. The Cedar Rapids City Council this week advanced rezoning a large portion of the Big Cedar Industrial Center to accommodate intensive industrial users. Under a rezoning request by Alliant Energy, which controls the park, a 245-acre parcel on the western side of the overall 1,391-acre site, which is north of 76th Avenue Southwest and west of Tissel Hollow Road Southwest, will be rezoned from Agricultural District to General Industrial District. This would allow a developer to transform the currently vacant farmland into a site for large industrial customers with heavy utility usage. It was recently annexed, and so under state code, the land automatically comes zoned as agricultural. As we see increased interest in that area down there, Development Services Manager Bill Michael said, it makes sense to rezone it so it's primed for development. City Manager Jeff Pomerantz told the Gazette the city is hoping to see developmental activity of some kind in 2024 at the Big Cedar site, but declined to offer more details. An 890-acre certified portion of the overall site is Iowa's first megasite, which offers hundreds of acres of development-ready land to potential developers. All 1,391 acres are controlled by Alliant Energy. The Cedar Rapids City Planning Commission voted unanimously January 4 to recommend rezoning of the western portion. The City Council unanimously advanced the rezoning Tuesday with no discussion. Councilmember Ann Poe was absent. All other areas of Big Cedar within the City of Cedar Rapids already are zoned general industrial. The easterly portion was rezoned in August. At that time, the applicant did not have a site plan for future development, but
but was looking to make the site marketable to a variety of industrial and employment-based users. Specific site plans are not required for rezoning. Any project leveraging city financial incentives likely involving any significant user or development would come before the Council for review. At that time, the Council could condition incentives on review of the site plan or other development features. Also in Iowa Today News, this story by Trish Mahaffey, lawsuits allege wrongful death in taboo shooting. Two lawsuits have been filed against the now-defunct Taboo Nightclub and Lounge and Timothy L. Rush, who fatally shot a man and woman and injured others as he fired into the crowded downtown Cedar Rapids nightclub April 10, 2022. Three mothers of the five minor children are suing for negligence and wrongful death of the children's father, Marvin Cox, age 31, of Cedar Rapids, who died from his gunshot injuries. Also killed were Nicole Owens, age 35, who had a child with Rush. The petition asserts Rush, age 33, of Cedar Rapids, was negligent in failing to use care and caution when using a firearm, using the gun to intimidate or promote fear, in discharging the gun and failing to obey Iowa laws prohibiting possession of a firearm by a felon. The mothers, Justine M. Grant, also administrator of Cox's estate, Sarah James, and Blasia McDowell, are asking for damages based on what the value of Cox's estate from the time of his premature death to what would likely be the end of his natural life, medical expenses, burial expenses, and other damages. The other petition, filed by Richard Nixian, who also was at the club that night and was injured in the shooting, is suing Rush for negligence and battery and asking for damages of past and future medical expenses past and future lost wages, pain and suffering, and other damages. Both lawsuits are suing Taboo for vicarious liability and negligent security. Rush was a part-time employee of the club and working that night. The suits assert Taboo is liable for all injuries and damages suffered by the plaintiffs as a result of his actions. The owner of the floor, former club, Matitz Williams didn't respond to a request for comment Wednesday afternoon on the lawsuits. A response to the petitions hasn't been filed yet. The mother's suit asserts that because the club provided security, Cox would rely on the club and its employees to protect him and others from wrongful actions of others while there. It also contends Taboo was negligent in its supervision and training of Rush. Both suits, excuse me, both suits, also assert Taboo sold and served Rush beer or liquor that night and knew or should have known he was intoxicated. Both lawsuits were filed November 30 by the same law firm in West Des Moines. Neither has been set for trial. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest column today is titled Transparency Needed in AEA Reforms. Imagine, before they reach six months old, realizing you have no idea how to parent your own child. That was our reality with our youngest son, Cameron. Adopted at birth, we thought we had prepared for everything, but found ourselves in entirely uncharted territory. It was beyond terrifying. We felt alone and insufficient to the task when Cam couldn't roll over, couldn't sit up, couldn't even lift his own head. 
Private Therapy Amazing, as it has been, came with many precious months lost to an extensive waiting list. Scheduling and availability remains a permanent headache, even here in Des Moines. Through it all, our local AEA has been there for us, serving Cam, following him to school, helping coordinate his extensive team of miracle workers, and, if I'm going to be honest, teaching us how to parent a child with unique needs. There are no other kids with Cameron's genetic difference. He is, as we say, a unicorn. His development, a man-made miracle. The things Cam needs aren't found at Target. The bed that keeps him safe at night doesn't come from homemakers. His chairs can't be bought at Walmart. Time and again, AEA lifts us up, helping us navigate a world with no map. They do this for thousands of families across our state. I don't know if the AEA system is efficient or inefficient, effective or ineffective. I only know the miracle it has been to my child. Any reforms need to be properly informed and narrowly targeted to protect our most, val- our most vulnerable. They need certainty. The current proposed changes have been negotiated in cloak-and-dagger fashion, far from the eyes of those most dependent upon this system. Reform, if necessary, must be publicly informed by the districts, administrators, service providers, teachers, and parents most impacted and best informed. The state should create a commission, including members of each constitution group, or excuse me, constituent group, tasked with gathering evidence, understanding perspectives, and creating proposals for reforms targeted at areas found to be inefficient or ineffective while protecting what must be protected. This would be, for the first time, actual transparency in this process. Kids such as Cam don't vote and can't advocate for themselves. Most people don't see them at all. The quality of their lives are entirely dependent upon leaders keeping them at the center of decision-making. If they are left behind, even amid the best of intentions, no one will hear their cries. And that's submitted today by Christian... Vasilius, who lives in Clive and is the parent of an adopted special needs child. 24-hour doorman today is titled, Local Control Takes Another Body Blow. Republicans who run the Golden Dome of Wisdom have shredded local control so completely it's tough to imagine how they could take more authority away from local governments. And yet they keep finding new ways to use state power to benefit their donors and allies who would rather do business under weak state rules than deal with more rigorous county and city ordinances. This time, it's about water and dirt. Senate File 455 would bar cities and counties from adopting rules governing stormwater runoff from commercial and residential developments that exceed a very low bar set by the state. The bill also would stop local ordinances requiring builders to put topsoil back on finished sites. So basically, the state will dictate how much stormwater gushes from a site, even though its local taxpayers will pay for the consequences. Topsoil, which soaks up runoff, will be put back in place only if feasible under state rules. So, you've got a city such as Cedar Rapids, which experiences flash flooding and local leaders want to put stormwater rules for new development in place that would help solve the problem. Tough darts. The state says new developments can be required to hold runoff only at the same rate 
the land soaked it up pre-construction. Improvement? That would cost too much money, bill supporters insist. Under the bill, which passed the Senate last year and is being considered now by the House Local Government Committee, ordinances requiring the replacement of topsoil in Cedar Rapids, North Liberty, and Coralville would be washed away. Enjoy your compacted clay yards, homeowners. Soaking up and filtering water improves water quality. Who cares about that? Not the current regime. Tim Palmer, a longtime soil and water commissioner in Madison County and a past president of the Conservation Districts of Iowa, told me a law applying a single standard on all the topography and soil types in Iowa would be a big step backward. CDI opposes the bill. It's just the opposite of what we need, Palmer said. This saga has gone on for the better part of a decade. A state rule requiring topsoil replacement was scrapped by the Environmental Protection Commission on the advice of a stakeholder panel appointed by then-Governor Terry Branstad. The panel was dominated by realtors, home builders, and earth movers. The commission ignored overwhelming public opposition to tossing the rule. So we're worried about fish, one home builder said during a hearing on the state topsoil rule, clearly grasping the concept. But despite that governing malpractice, it still was possible for local authorities to set rules that made sense for their communities. Naturally, this can't stand. The home builders were back to make their case to the local government committee this week. They argued once again that adhering to local rules would make houses too expensive. They insisted the topsoil issue had already been litigated by the EPC. It certainly was a jury of their peers. Because the bill passed the Senate last year, all it needs to do now is clear local government and pass the House. It could move fast. So weigh in if you care about water. Otherwise, local control will sleep with the fishes. And that's 24-hour doorman. One community letter today. And the title is, Marion Police Chief Omits Important Traffic Camera Data. Marion Police Chief Mike Kitzmiller promoted the theme of doom and gloom to advocate the installation of traffic cameras in Marion, principally to deter drivers who run red lights. However, initial data demonstrates most citations issued are for drivers who simply fail to come to a complete stop before turning right on red. No data has been presented concerning drivers who run a red light. Because rolling stops would rarely be cited by an officer, the chief inappropriately claims time is saved when citations are issued via camera. Conversely, the chief omits time incurred by an officer to review alleged camera violations before a citation can be issued as state law requires. When I previously asked the city of Cedar Rapids about its experience, I was advised an officer incurs a review average of one minute per video. Assuming the same for Marion, the 12,588 violations between September 18 and December 31 equals to 210 hours of review time. At eight eight hours per day, that equals to 26 days. The chief may want to claim less camera review time incurred, but if so, is due process really being afforded to citizens? 
And that letter today is signed by Gary Hughes from Marion. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It's Thursday, January 25, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now I'm turning to the obituary page, beginning with the short notices, only one today from Lansing, Kenneth J. Leppert, age 89, died Monday, January 22nd. Thirdberg Groff Funeral Home is in charge. And turning to the regular notices, first from Blairstown, Leo L. Rabe, age 82, of Blairstown, passed away Monday, January 22nd, at Compass Memorial Healthcare in Marengo. Family will receive friends from 4 to 7 p.m. on Friday, January 26th, at Kloster Funeral Home in Marengo. A private family memorial service will be held at a later date. A memorial fund has been established. Leo Lewis Rabe was born in Cedar Rapids September 29, 1941, the son of Lewis and Helen Pease Rabe. Leo was a man of few words and lived by the motto, Honesty, Integrity, and Reliability. Online condolences can be left at klosterfuneralhome.com. In Iowa City, Larry Dean Manasmith, Mean Lardine, 87, died suddenly from a heart ailment, January 17th. A time of remembrance will be held Sunday, February 18, from 2 to 5 p.m. at the Kirkwood Room, 515 Kirkwood Avenue in Iowa City. Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service is handling arrangements. Memorial donations are suggested to the family and will go toward Parkinson's research at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Larry was born October, or excuse me, on August 27, 1936, to Mildred Bishop and Lester Manasmith. He was raised on a farm outside of Wellman and graduated from Wellman High School in 1955. Following graduation, he farmed with his dad and worked at a man of refrigeration. From Iowa City, Pearlie Gaudette Carter, age 98, went home to be with the Lord on Monday, January 8. She moved to Iowa City in 2012 to be near her son and was a resident of Melrose Meadows until her health started to fail. She was briefly a resident at Crestview Nursing and Rehab Center in West Branch. The oldest of ten, Pearlie, was born August 30, 1925 in Havelock, North Carolina to Aceline Frazier and Willie Goodette. She attended and graduated from Hampton University in 1949 with a B.S. degree in science. She was a member of the Delta Sigma Theta sorority and a member of Barnes United Methodist Church. Memorial services will be held Saturday, January 27th at 2 p.m. at Melrose Meadows in Iowa City. Funeral services will be held at a later date at Barnes United Methodist Church, Indianapolis, Indiana. Interment at Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis. To share a condolence with her family, visit Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service website. From Cedar Rapids, Paul Michael Sanderson, age 69, passed away Sunday, January 21st at St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. on Monday, January 29, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. Funeral service will begin at 11 a.m. on Tuesday, January 30 at First Lutheran Church in Cedar Rapids, 
with inurnment to follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Paul was born September 19, 1954, in Esterville, Iowa, the son of Daniel Dean and Florence May Johnson Sanderson. He was a graduate of Esterville High School and Luther College. Memorials in Paul's memory may be directed to the University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital, and you can share a memory at MurdochFuneralHome.com. From Glendale, California, Maureen Ratner, age 63, died Sunday, January 14th in Glendale from chronic kidney disease, or CKD, and its complications. There will be no services. A celebration of her life will be held in late spring or summer. Maureen grew up in Cedar Rapids and graduated from Washington High School along with her twin sister, Jeanette, in 1979. She attended the University of Iowa for two years, then transferred to New York University. Maureen graduated from NYU Tisch School of Arts in 1983, and within a year she moved to Los Angeles and spent the rest of her life in that area. Donations are suggested in memory of Maureen to the Cedar Valley Humane Society, 7411 Mount Vernon Road, Cedar Rapids, or online at cvhumane.org. In either place, you can enter Maureen's name. From Des Moines, Randy Littrell, 64, passed away Tuesday, January 23rd, in his sleep of a heart attack. Randy was born March 12, 1959. After graduating from West High School in Iowa City, he attended two years of college at San Diego State, majoring in oceanography and graduating from the University of Iowa. Randy was preceded in death by his father, Laness, and his grandparents. A private family gathering will be held at a later date. Memorials are suggested to your local animal shelter in Randy's name. To share a condolence with her family, please visit Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service website at gayandchia.com. And that should have been in, excuse me, to share a condolence with his family. From Marion, Virginia R. Joslin, age 78, passed away Sunday, January 21st. Visitation will take place Friday, January 26th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel Stateroom. Funeral service will be held Saturday, January 27th at 11 a.m. at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel of Memories, interment at Oak Hill Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Virginia was born December 26, 1945, to Norman and Dorothy Cook Tikau. She obtained an accounting degree from Kirkwood Community College and served as an accountant at United Way for 25 years. Memorial donations are suggested to her family and online condolences may be directed to the family at cedarmemorial.com. From Mechanicsville, Becky Ann Haley Danley, age 71, passed away Tuesday, January 23rd at St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids. Visitation is from 9 to 11 a.m. on Tuesday, January 30th. Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services in Mount Vernon. Celebration of Life is at 11 a.m. on Tuesday, January 30, at the funeral home. Becky Danley was born August 16, 1952, in Sioux City, Iowa, the daughter of Wilbur and Eloise Lamont 
Haley. She was married to Steve Danley, November 28, 1970. Becky worked for the Mechanicsville Bank, Merchants Bank, and retired from the Mechanicsville Telephone Company. She was a member of the Mechanicsville Presbyterian Church and involved with the Presbyterian Women and Mechanicsville Food Pantry. Please share your support and memories with Becky's family at stuartbaxter.com. From Anamosa, Judy Bonson, or Banson, age 79, died Tuesday morning, January 23rd, at her home following an extended illness. Funeral services will be held at 2 o'clock Friday, January 26th, at the Getch Funeral Home in Anamosa, with interment in the Riverside Cemetery. Friends may call afternoon until 1.45 at the funeral home. Thoughts, memories, and condolences may be left at getchonline.com. Judith Ann Ortgies was born November 3, 1944, to John McDonald, or excuse me, at John McDonald Hospital in Monticello. She was the daughter of Rudolph and Elna Duncan Ortgies. Her birth father died from polio when Judy was three. She was raised by her mom and stepfather, Robert G. Rowater. Judy graduated from the Wyoming High School and married John Banson, November 11, 1961, at the Little Brown Church in Nashua. Judy belonged to bridge clubs, bowling leagues, and the Wapsie Country Club. Her greatest passion was her family. From Cedar Rapids, John Joseph Friesmeyer, 52, passed away peacefully, surrounded by his family, January 20. A visitation will be held at 9 a.m. on Friday, January 26, until the time of the funeral mass at 11 a.m. at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Catholic Church in Hiawatha. A private burial at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery will be held at a later date. John was born November 2, 1971, in Fort Madison, Iowa, to Delmer and Cheryl Molehi Friesmeyer. He attended Marquette High School in West Point, Iowa, and graduated from the University of Iowa with honors in mechanical engineering in 1995 and earned his master's degree in engineering in 1997. John worked for TRW Automotive, Maytag, and Collins Aerospace. He was a skilled engineer and developed nine patents over his career, from airbags to refrigerators to cockpit displays. Memorials may be made to John's family or the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House Fund. Given John's love for plants and trees, please consider planting a tree in his honor. Online condolences can be directed to the family at cedarmemorial.com. And lastly, from Alburnett, Anita Louise Render, age 78, passed away at her home Monday, January 22nd. Visitation is from 1 to 3 p.m. on Sunday, January 28th, and 10 to 11 a.m. on Monday, January 29. Memorial service is at 11 a.m. on Monday, January 29. Visitations and service held at St. Mark's Lutheran in Marion. It was Anita's wish that any memorial tributes be made in the form of charitable donations to Mayo Clinic's Cancer Research or St. Mark's Lutheran Church Funeral Fund, an obituary can be found at cedarmemorial.com. This story also appears on the obituary page. Charles Osgood, CBS host on TV and radio, dies at 91. 
Charles Osgood, a five-time Emmy award-winning journalist who anchored CBS Sunday Morning for more than two decades, hosted the long-running radio program The Osgood File, and was referred to as CBS News's poet-in-residence, has died at age 91. CBS reported that Osgood died Tuesday at his home in Saddle River, New Jersey, and that the cause was dementia, according to his family. I'll abbreviate the article to say that he worked radio and television with equal facility and signed off by telling listeners, I'll see you on the radio. To say there's no one like Charles Osgood is an understatement. Rand Morrison, executive producer of Sunday Morning, said in a statement, he embodied the heart and soul of Sunday Morning. <clears throat> At the piano, Charlie put our lives to music. Truly, he was one of a kind in every sense. CBS News Sunday Morning will honor Osgood with a special broadcast on Sunday. Turning now to the sports page, Boys Wrestling Notebook, Regional Dual Assignments Named. This story by K.J. Pilcher. The field is set and teams know their paths. The task is to earn a trip to the state duels tournament February 3 at Extreme Arena in Coralville. The Iowa High School Athletic Association released regional dual pairings and host sites Tuesday for all three classes. First round and finals duels will be held January 30th. Al Burnett was fourth at state duels last season. The Pirates have been impressive all season, winning titles at Western Dubuque's Bobcats duels in December and their home dual competition on Saturday. They even finished sixth at the 32-team Battle of Waterloo. We're looking forward to this opportunity, Albernet coach Clayton Rush said. I think our sights are set on something different from last year. Albernet has battled teams from all classes and has the top ranking to show for it. The Pirates obtained a first-round bye. They will wrestle the winner of number 16 Pleasantville and number 17 Earlham for a return trip to the state duels. We know what kind of team we have and what we're capable of, Rush said, so we are looking forward to some competitive duels next week. Eighth-ranked Linmar is one of six area programs, but is the lone one to host in the Class 3A field. The Lions are hosting for the third straight season, looking to advance after a one-year hiatus. Linmar received a first-round bye and faces the winner of number 9 Waverly Shell Rock and number 23 Pleasant Valley in the final. Cedar Rapids Prairie slipped four spots to number 13 in the decisive IHSAA poll. The Hawks will wrestle number 19 Iowa City West in a first-round duel at Bettendorf. The winner advances to the final against the number 3 Bulldogs. For just the second time in school history, Cedar Rapids Xavier earned a spot in the regional duel field. The Saints debuted at number 21 and wrestle number 11, Johnston, in the first round at Ancony Centennial. The winner takes on the host Jaguars in the final. City High is ranked 16th and is paired with number 17, Norwalk, at number 1, Southeast Polk. The Walmart Conference is well represented in the 2A regional duels. Mount Vernon, West Delaware, and Independence will all host, while Benton Community, Clear Creek, Amana, Solon, and Williamsburg make it seven total conference teams in the field. The WOMAC is a reflection of a lot of things, Independence coach Michael Doyle said. You have good communities, good coaches, and good resources that put these kids in position to perform well. 
We have some great coaches who are coaches of the year. They're involved in different organizations as leaders. It's indicative of a lot of those variables. As a result, you see these teams compete well. Clear Creek Amana finds itself in the 3A state duels hunt for the first time. The Clippers have ascended the rankings to number 12 after a third place showing at the Clyde Bean Brad Smith duels on Saturday. CCA at 17 and 6 opens against number 20 North Scott at Dubuque Hempstead. The Mustangs will wrestle the winner of a state duels for a state duels berth. The Clippers have seven wins over regional dual participants. The journey to this point has been shaped by the commitment to small details, those seemingly minor actions that have collectively, collectively propelled us forward, CCA coach Kyle Fornes said. And in girls basketball, this story by Jeff Linder links in the midst of another typical wonderful season. When a program enjoys this amount of success for this length of time, it's natural, albeit unfortunate, for it to be taken for granted. Such is life for the girls' basketball program at North Lynn, but only from the outside. We can never start looking at it like that, Lynx coach Brian Wheatley said. We can't afford to look too far ahead or too far behind. The top-ranked team in Class 1A since the start of the season North Lynn is in the midst of a typically outstanding winter. The Lynx at 15-1 and overall and 12-0 and in the Tri-Rivers Conference West Division wrapped up their third straight divisional title and their 10th in the last 12 years with a 60-25 to win over Central City on Tuesday. It's nice, but we don't have a lot of time to celebrate, Wheatley said. That's because the Lynx face a non-conference showdown with 3A number 1 Mount Vernon tonight. Tip-off is at 7.30 at Troy Mills. Mount Vernon presents a ton of challenges, Wheatley said. They have size and they have ability to shoot on top of that. North Lynn's non-conference slate also contained tests against 4A, soon-to-be number 1 Clear Creek Amana a 45-44 loss at Rivalry on Saturday, and 2A number 4, Iowa City Regina, a come-from-behind 53-48 win last Saturday. The Lynx conclude the regular season February 8 at Cascade. It's the toughest non-conference that we've ever had, Wheatley said. I thought that would work well for this group. This group is a veteran outfit, fueled by seniors Cameron Kurt. 18.6 points per game, and Macy Bogue at 15.9 points per game, and junior Molly Bogue, 12.8 points per game. They can all do so many things, Wheatley said. One big improvement is Macy, as she's played some high post, which probably isn't a natural spot for her. Pre-holiday injuries to Skylar Benish and Emily Buter zapped the, the Lynx's depth somewhat, but everybody is back. Wheatley's daughter, senior Megan Wheatley, is shooting 61% from the three-point range and is 8-for-8 eight eight from distance in the last two divisional games. North Lynn has beaten its 12 league foes by an average of 41 points per game and finishes TRC West play with battles against East Buchanan on Friday and Maquoketa Valley on Tuesday.
One byproduct of the weather-caused scheduling mess of the past two weeks is this. River Valley Conference North Division Titans Monticello and Maquoketa will play twice in four days. The makeup game from January 12 is slotted for Saturday at Monticello. The regularly scheduled contest is Tuesday at Maquoketa. Monticello junior Jaden Cooper crossed the 1,000-point plateau on Tuesday. She has 1,016 points in two and a half seasons and is among the area leaders in points, rebounds, and steals per game. Maquoketa has won nine games in a row. Turning now to the Things to Do column, Introduction to Astrology, Natal Charts. Join local experts from the Relive, or excuse me, Realive Metaphysical Shop to start your astrology journey. Registration is required, events.crlibrary.org, and that takes place at the Cedar Rapids Library today from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. The cost is free. And dating workshop for divorced men. Whether you're newly single or have been on the market for a while, this in-person, men-only event is designed to help you navigate the dating scene with confidence. That takes place at the Hilton Garden Inn, 4640 North River Boulevard Northeast in Cedar Rapids from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Turning now to the Hoopla section, Tasty Treats is the title of the article by Diana Nolan. If you weren't hungry before reviewing the new ravenous food and art exhibit at the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art, you will be afterward. In brief, if you go, it's called Ravenous Food in Art. That's at the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art through May 5. Hours there are noon to 4 p.m. Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Saturday, and noon to 8 on Thursday. They're closed on Mondays. Admission charges ranges from $10 for adults, $9 for ages 62 and up, $8 for college students, and so on. An exhibition reception will be held from 5 to 6.30 p.m. on February 8, celebrating landscape, ravenous, and vessels. That is free and open to the public. And in the food category... Oak Hill Tavern op- opens in a former Boston space, this story by Elijah Decius. A new tavern has taken over the cozy space, formerly home to Boston Fish, Seafood Market, and Boston's restaurants. Oak Hill Tavern, which opened in October at the corner of 8th Avenue Southeast and 5th Street Southeast, brings a varied menu and a few novel plates to the Oak Hill Jackson neighborhood. Managing partner Bree McLaughlin, age 22, is trying her hand at ownership as she works to own her first restaurant in, part- in partnership with restaurant group Epic Catering, LLC. But she wants her first attempt to exude a more mature vibe with an emphasis on craft cocktails, a wide variety, and quick service. Briefly, if you go, it is Oak Hill Tavern, 804 5th Street Southeast in Cedar Rapids. Their hours are 11 a.m. to 2 a.m. daily. They have a website, oakhilltavern.godaddysites.com. Soups, salads, sandwiches, wraps, burgers, and pastas range from $13 to $18. 
and a full bar of drink options averages about $10 for most cocktails. Finishing up with a brief look at the weather, despite some milder weather, winter still is with us. We have 54 days left until the spring equinox. Spring officially starts on Tuesday, March 19. That gives us plenty of time to get more snow and cold, although through early February it's looking pretty mild. Rain likely today with some patchy fog and a high of 35 degrees in Cedar Rapids. The normal high for today is 28 and the normal low is 11. We set a record high of 61 degrees in 1981 and a record low of 23 degrees below zero in 1894. Those clouds and patchy fog stick around for Friday and Saturday, mostly cloudy on Sunday. Again, that patchy fog is possible. Sunset tonight at 5.13 p.m. Sunrise tomorrow at 7.25 a.m. That gives us 9 hours and 47 minutes of daylight. And we're in the full moon phase with moonrise at 5.05 p.m. and set at 8.20 a.m. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It's Thursday, January 25. I've been your reader, Kathleen. You can access a copy of today's reading anytime on Iowa Radio Reading. Please have a great, safe day. Thanks for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find 1-3% to of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more Earth Date stories at earthdate.org.